0: If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor.
1: First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use.
0: Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
1: And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us.
1: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm.
0: Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with...
1: This is Dr. Shiloh. Hello.
0: So good to be back. I know. How's it going?
1: Um, It's been a busy week. I went on call on Tuesday and today is Thursday.
0: You're still on call, right?
1: I'm on call for a week, so it's been two days and it's been really busy already. I've worked like a... 12 hour day and a 15 hour day.
0: <laughs> what? So, no, it just reminds <laughs> me like, when I, for the period of time that I was a law enforcement psych for a different agency. law enforcement agency than you, our call was set up so badly in that we had not even like, we had like a flip phone and a pager. Which is just, you know, this is not, that wasn't 1995. That was like three years ago. Yep. And it was awful. And, and also like, you know, being a a moderately anxious person, like just kind of, okay, you you just got to have that pager right by your, it's got to be right by your head 24 hours a day. I know know? it,
1: it does. I I find that it has that effect on a lot of psychologists where they just talk about this anticipation, anxiety of being on call. Yeah. Like getting out of the shower and checking to make sure they missed a call um I don't know. I'm not I'm not made with that whatever that is because I'm just kind of living. Well, you
0: were a cop. So maybe don't you think that informs?
1: Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I yeah. I think that might have something to do with it. I don't I never worked an assignment where I was on call. Previously in law enforcement, but like my hob- my husband was a homicide detective and he's been on call. So we have now sort of switched roles. After he came out of working the detective bureau, I got this job. So it's kind of nice because it's not like both of us are ever on call, right? Um, but maybe just the mindset is there of like, yeah, this is just part of the job. And, and I totally dig it. I don't mind at all. Um, but yeah, if, if my phone rings today, I'm still on call. I'm going to have, we're gonna have to cut <laughs> and I'm going to have to see what it is. Um, so if
0: it sounds a little weird, like we're kind of hopping back and forth, and yeah. It, but this is a good episode because we're covering questions yeah. and you were in training yesterday. What did you, what was your training on?
1: Uh, training yesterday was our update on suicide assessment, oh, cool. which now for licensure in California, When you renew your license, you have to have some continuing education credits on suicide. Right. So, um, my work actually put together an in house training, which was great because it was, we were able to. To shape it so it was very specific to doing assessments with law enforcement officers. Oh, that's great. Um and it was fantastic. I mean, it was it was stuff that I got when I first was hired, but I don't I think I was so new I wasn't able to wrap my mind around it and digest yeah. it fully. And now that I've been in the job 2 years, um it just it was nice to kind of sit and have a full day of it and it was Really nice. That oh, that's good. great. You did a ton of training this week. I know.
0: I did th- three days in a row, which is a lot. That, uh, oh, even though it yeah. was great. I did, even though at the expense of you rolling your eyes at me, I had two days of the <laughs> level two training with Kevin Cameron uh, from Canada. The, we call it Vitra, Violence Response Start Association. No, <laughs> assessment. Assessment, <laughs> not association. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, again, it was amazing. And uh, the great thing is, is that I approached him and he's going to, uh, be on the podcast one of these days. Yay. So we had to just collaborate with him on what Good. we want to do. And then yesterday, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Doctor Nicole Paglione from Conrep over at uh, Gateways Hospital. And for those of you who don't know, and we have a, a a program here in Southern California that is a partnership between parole, probation, and a a publicly funded hospital so they are really doing kind of what we did as previously in our internship and you did for you know another 9 mm-hmm. years after that which was you did sex offender evaluation and threat assessment and treatment planning and these people at gateways do for just violent offenders right. that may or may not have co-occurring significant mental health disorders and um so it's
1: a lot of monitoring of them once they come back into the community.
0: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was three great days of training, but I feel like my my brain is a little bit of mush um and I can't wait to let it sit for a couple of weeks and then go back and look over the notes because these are actually trainings that gave great notes, so that was really Good. exciting.
1: Nice. Well, so. you and I have been invited to do a talk at a threat assessment conference, probably coming up in September.
0: We did? <laughs> oh Jesus. My God, have I already yes. forgot about this?
1: So we originally said were going to do the FBI seminar, and then right. they said we have this other threat assessment thing we want you to do it at. So oh, great. So Scott and I are going to do a presentation on incels, which... Oh, yeah. We basically developed after doing our episodes and doing all that research, so that's going to be fun.
0: Yeah, and by the way, I'm still a little bit myth that we didn't get picked up for ATAP, ATAP uh, Association of Threat Association. Uh, well, that's why I didn't Jeez. get me, because I can never remember what the acronym stands for. <laughs> But it's a huge threat assessment and law enforcement uh, entity, and
1: it's wonderful. Yeah, conference. it's a
0: really good conference. But you know, the incel thing has not been covered that much, although it's coming up in the news now. Two huge articles about incels having uh, all signing up for plastic surgery, yes, thinking that by fixing their zygomatic arch and expanding their jawline that they're going to just immediately having oh, panties Jesus. thrown. See, my at
1: phone's them. ringing. All right, <laughs> your phone. Time out. Time
0: out. And we're back.
1: Okay, so that was a SWAT call out. We're all going together. I'm just going to bring the microphones and um, let's do this.
0: <laughs>
1: no, it was a very like a
0: helicopter uh,
1: benign phone call. Good. Um, so nobody's
0: got hurt. That's good.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Okay.
0: So anyway, lots of training. We're always happy about that, and um, yeah. it's going to lead to some other things, uh, some other people that we have here on uh, interviewing. And, um, yeah, it'll be cool.
1: So today's going to be a fun episode. Yeah. We are doing all of your listener questions that we have gathered. Um, I even went back and looked at some that you know just were random kind of questions that we hadn't answered maybe through Facebook. We answer mostly everything pretty quickly. Yeah. But there is – I think I found a couple that we hadn't gotten back to people on. And a lot of times it's – the questions are all over the place and they're so fascinating in depth and I'm like – Wow, these people have done a lot of research and I work. Know. and
0: <laughs> I'm impressed. It makes me very happy that like, people are engaged. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's just jump in. Yeah. Um, this one comes from our friend Molly from the Yeah Know Ya yeah podcast. Oh, I think she them. put it out on Twitter. I couldn't, find, this was the only one I couldn't find a screenshot of. But essentially, she said, please talk about the first time you guys met tell us everything we want to act, we want to feel like we're there <laughs> so i thought it was a wonderful place to start even though we've talked a little bit about internship but maybe we can paint a good picture of our first day
0: okay it's it's a it's a picture it's a picture okay right you know what i want to start and i bet I... our
1: pictures are different so What's that's, that? i bet our pictures are oh, different oh i'm sure they
0: are i'm sure they are but i want to go back to So I'm going to take it back even a little bit earlier. I'm going to watch the clock so that I don't like just jabber for an hour on this. But so, you know, we talked about this in our, so you want to be a forensic psychologist episode, but there are so many aspects to just completing the process. And one of the most important ones is getting an internship. So I applied for a number and I got one of the problems was is i didn't want to do two half time internships i actually couldn't afford to i couldn't afford to like go another year and take out another huge chunk of student loan i just couldn't afford so to so you
1: do mean part time for 2 years right right
0: and you know and it it blew well, my man. mind and it also blew other people's i got like five offers but they were all you want to work full time for free yeah
1: Yeah, let's get this over with. Pay an
0: extra year of tuition, and you know, get it over with. But anyway, so I went to interview at. I mean, we're we're pretty coy about who we are professionally for for reasons. But it's been ten years. We we did our uh, internships at a place. uh, uh, The parent company is called Pacific Forensics, and the subsidiary or the direct server is called Sharper Future. And they've got several locations throughout California. It's specifically about providing services to forensic populations, but also uh, non-sexual offending populations depending on the contracts they have. Right. So we got, a, we got like a really good experience. But, but they
1: were the leaders or have been the leaders in sexual offense treatment for a, years. Absolutely,
0: And they, they absolutely know what they're doing. They're kind of amazing. So the thing that amazed me was because of my own <laughs> character logical issues where I'm kind of, you know, I'm an up upbeat person to work with but i'm also kind of moody and but i have to say this i can present well in an interview in fact i have been told that like if if, if i had a superpower i can present very well in interviews wow. and i also have i can back it up i mean i have education and right. you know i know what i'm talking about um however in this interview with dr chankin who was the the director of sharper future at the time of our location Uh, I went in and, uh, you know, you part of interpersonal interactions is that your interactions are instantaneously affected by the the reactions you get from the people you're talking to. So imagine going in and talking to someone that is so composed that you can't read them at all. And that was Dr. Chankin. And it was like, I walked out of the interview going... I have no idea how I did. The only thing that was positive was I you know I didn't know how to answer one question. I said, you know, I I know nothing about this population. I'm interested. I'm f- actually now that you've explained to me exactly what this is, I'm really f- even more fascinated by it. And Dr. Chenkin's reaction was wonderful because she said, "You're an intern. I don't expect you to know everything. Right. This is where you come to learn."
1: And people screw up and try to fake it like they know. Yeah, and you're doing that in front of people who know, so they can see right through it.
0: So if you're listening, that applies to anything and every every. You will look better by saying, you know, I don't really know much about that, but I'm more than happy to learn. You know, but anyway, so I got the offer. Um, I found out I was not her first choice. Like I think you were one. You were one of the first choices. Yeah, they called
1: me right at eight o'clock or whatever they were supposed to, and I actually put them on hold because they weren't my first choice. Wow. Yeah. And then my first choice didn't call because they screwed up the date of calling people. They called me a week later and were like, "Congrats, you got the internship." Like I said, "Well, that's late. nice because notification day was last week.
0: Well, that tells I don't you. want to
1: work for you anyway."
0: Yeah, and that tells you a little bit about how disappointing it was. Exactly.
1: No, it all worked
0: out. So, that that was how I got I mean, I got the the offer and I was very excited. What I wasn't what I also what I was excited about was the location was literally a 10 minute drive from my apartment where we were sitting where we interviewed where we interviewed right and then they go oh by the way we're moving offices to south central los angeles and let me tell you folks it was it was that driving to that location the first day was an eye-opener it was like every day
1: for a year was an
0: eye-opener and i mean because of the population that sharper future serves you can't be near a school you can't be near a park but because these people that are yeah but yeah. because these people are getting it has to be accessible by public transportation right. or most of the clients would not be able to make it so bottom the bottom line is
1: nobody wants sex offender treatment yeah. Program in their neighborhood or in their area. So you don't have a lot to pick from. No, it wouldn't. We were literally in between a warehouse for like taco trucks or something. Yeah. And
0: I don't even know. What's I, I, think it. It I just know like there a was lot. a pursuit
1: one day and the cops crashed right in front of our building. And yeah. like there was a, I don't think there was a shootout, but it was madness.
0: And madness. it was a terrible building. I mean, it was just this weird sort of chopped up like weird dank hallways and
1: the toilets were
0: always backing to- oh, the up and toilets smelling were horribly backed up right
1: by our office.
0: Yeah, it was terrible. But the first day I went into to our shared office where we had four interns and cr- crammed into this tiny office and you were sitting there. Um,
1: well, I think you, so you and Sarah were the first two there and I remember being the, I think the third one there of the day. Okay. And thinking, oh, it looks like they already bonded. And you guys were, like, both from the South, and I was <laughs> kind of jealous, and I was like, I want to be his friend. <laughs> and then But I, you're
0: hard to read. I couldn't I tell at all. Yeah. You were completely, all I remember, the main thing I remember about you coming in was you going, I'll take this desk with my back to the door because I need to learn mm-hmm. to tolerate that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then that's, I mean, that's all I really, the first day was kind of a whirlwind. We just had our, uh, what would be our fellow coworkers and therapists sort of introducing themselves, which was interesting in and of itself. Yeah,
0: yeah. But Uh, I remember specifically like Sarah and Jen were out of the, it was just the two of us sitting back to back and I had already gotten uncomfortable enough with you to just Start letting my freak flag fly, and I remember, I remember like I remember saying something like, "Oh, I really like you. I hope you're not fucking crazy." <laughs> and you you did this thing where you had your hair down and you flipped around and gave me the craziest like. Like dagger stare, and then died laughing, and it was was awesome. It was like, oh, okay, we're going to be friends. You have to
1: tell the story about the phone, though, because that wasn't that far into internship, right? No,
0: it was a few months later. I was very excited because Dan and I decided to finally like we're going to get iPhones, right? And I was so excited, and I was like, oh my god, you don't have to tap three times to do a C. You've actually got a keyboard, and so
1: we are back to back. If you just picture like two desks with computers. Back to back. I can't see you. You can't see me. We're doing our work.
0: And I'm texting or typing something, and you say in the flattest voice you know, you can turn that keyboard sound off.
1: Because it was just. How the hell am I supposed to get anything done with you back there playing well, with your new iPhone? But
0: I didn't know I didn't know how to do it. But interesting, <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, like you, you inspired me later because when when I worked at the prisons and I would took a van pool with a bunch of other clinicians, there was one guy who would do that and it annoyed the shit out of me. So he got out at a gas station to get a soda or something and i grabbed his phone and i turned off the keyboard sound oh wow you one-upped me i did i was like because i wasn't gonna ask wait i knew if i asked him he would just turn up the volume so
1: right i think we were fun i remember the um the power went out in the building once and so you and i went to the front lobby and we were doing ballroom dancing
0: oh right to keep ourselves cha. -cha. yeah
1: (laughs) um we printed one of us like took a picture with our phone of one of our supervisors in a meeting where she was just really serious and then we blew it up and photocopied it
0: yeah made it into poster size put it all over the face all over building yeah well that was a little passive aggressive of us but she was she was a she was a tough cookie to work with that was not dr Chenkin. dr Chenkin was an absolute dream to work with i know i know and one of the best supervisors i've ever had
1: and i saved your life i think once
0: you oh you did yeah yeah That was bad.
1: I know, I know. So, bonded forever. It was great. Uh, It was interesting for you.
0: It was interesting for me because it hasn't. It has not happened since then, and it was a long time. What I had was, uh, we were at the end of our tenure there in the internship, and for me a lot of forces were coming to bear there were like there were several terminal points that were coming to bear one was the end of the internship which gave me enough hours to graduate however i had to submit and present my dissertation along within that same time frame and there was nothing like there was no money i mean it was really financially i was really kind of like oh my gosh i'm an adult yeah. And I you know I've never been this broke as an adult and right. it was really stressful. So we were in a we were in a staff meeting and my heart started racing and I thought I was like It was this weird metacognition that was going on because I was looking across the table at you and at one point you looked at me and you could tell something was up because my color was off and I was like acting weird.
1: It's like you were trying to tell me something with your eyes and I desperately just wanted to go, if it's that important, Scott, just interrupt the meeting. You know, I was trying to portray that with my face. Yeah.
0: Yeah yeah and basically what I was doing was I'm having a panic attack yeah, yeah. and we and it was really weird because like on one hand, like the meta the sort of the narrative that was going on in my head was oh i' i'm dying oh i'm 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 having a heart attack which is very that's a very common that's symptom of panic attacks, yeah. and the other layer of that cognition was no, I've had this before, you're not, this is fine, do the breathing um, but it just became, you know, if, if it had been any other context or any other situation, it would have, you know, I would have been completely um, okay. And you, we had to call, oh my God, you used the cop talk and you picked up the phone and called 911 and we had uh, a fireman. We had an EMT mm-hmm. fire team there, like within 30 seconds. I don't oh, even know where that came from. It was very quick. It was very and, quick. Three of the hottest guys. Right. It was straight out of Central Casting.
1: Totally. A
0: black guy, a white guy, and Hispanic guy, all like models. And of course now because they they have to clear me from having a heart attack, so I've got to open my your sure? pasty forty year old body <laughs>
1: on the floor of the intern room.
0: <laughs> but the guy, one of them goes, "Hey, you work out." I'm like, "He gave me a compliment." <laughs> It's just the saddest thing ever. Oh, my ever. God. So there you know about me. There That's you why go. I'm an anxiety expert in my private practice, <laughs> because I have I have fought that that dragon and won. That
1: was such a stressful year, though. I, it was. I mean, I was on leave from the department, so I wasn't getting paid, because I had to take a leave of absence to do my internship full-time. So, you know, we're getting a, a tiny, tiny stipend. It was a huge financial stressor, and then I was... Uh, processing with the FBI. So I'm going through those interviews and practicing my physical agility test. Oh
0: my God. You doing the the pull-ups, the pull-ups and the, what was the other thing that was really challenging for you? Because what do you have to do with it? Was it the push-ups within a certain amount of time? Yeah.
1: It's push-ups, sit-ups, running, God, and something else. I don't, I don't know if we had to do, yeah, I think we did had to do, had to do pull-ups, but yeah, I don't know. It's just like super basic but hard stuff. Yeah.
0: So it was that's how we met and it was a, it was great and it was challenging. And I think that's you know, I think that's how um the crucible of friendships really becomes productive is when you right. go through something so tough together and yeah. it was worth it.
1: Yeah, it was. Question number 2. Question number 2. Okay, so I'm going to say this question um but I'm not really going to comment on it because I Sort of can't go there much. But this comes from Rachel Rowe on Twitter. Her handle is... Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L-R-O-H. But she says, in general, are LAPD and LASD better or worse after their leadership changes? So LAPD is the Los Angeles Police Department. LASD is the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And both have had new leadership in the last year. So LAPD has a new chief. The Sheriff's Department has a new sheriff. Um, And I'm going to say... I hear that one's better and one's worse, but I can't really <laughs> comment a ton.
0: Yeah, Rachel, uh, I'm so glad that you you asked the question. That's a really hard one for us to. Yeah. Even though we, Shiloh and I are kind of uh, on different areas of the spectrum about our positioning, um, not not opinion, just our positioning and our, our past experience, and also sort of. You know, moving forward, what I would say is it's a really complex issue, and it's two of the largest law enforcement agencies in the world, and it is filled with people who are incredibly dedicated to their work. Right. And, you know, I have had in working with one of those entities, I've had this amazing experience of seeing people who want to mentor up and coming officers, and they They are egoless, and they are they are amazing, amazing men and women because all they want to do is make everybody better at their job. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, not everybody's like that. There are other people that are completely ego driven. And I'll be here's the one thing that I will say, um, which I would not be surprised if if this some comes back at some point to bite me in the rear. But um, the former head of uh, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, uh, Baca, mm-hmm. and his uh, second-in-command, Tanaka, were incredibly problematic individuals on a number of levels, and it is a really good thing that they're gone. Yeah. Um, they,
1: these I mean, these are huge agencies with just incredible historical legacies, and... I have a connection to both in one way or another. My parents right. were with the sheriff's department. Uh, I went to the sheriff's Department's academy. that's where I graduated from. so I have really close friends and strong connections there um, and it it is very it is very complex and I, I think the thing is it's it's too early to tell also because right there is it is such a newness and change of command that you don't get to see how that all shakes out for a little while but um yeah very interesting I, you can find plenty of material if if you want to read about the history or even sort of the current stuff going on and people's feelings about it but it it's very subjective anyway so
0: yeah but I will say this is that we have another question coming up that is somewhat related yeah, to this yeah, and, and sure. that will, I mean, I'm not going to make direct connections, but once again, it's a complex issue as far as it goes with the, the newest leader of sheriff's department. There are some really good things about him, but, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just not even going to mention the name. I'm just going to say there's some great things about him. There are some, major decisions he's made about reinstating people that um, I I'm not gonna comment I don't I am not informed enough to know if this individual's decision is based on I'm gonna reinstate these deputies because they were wrongfully terminated I don't I don't know enough to comment on that right what I do know as a person who's worked in different areas of administration and as a pretty much an expert on understanding human behavior because of my education and training i can tell you that was really poorly timed because this is not the time to be reinstating people with the kind of charges Mm -hmm. that were brought up against them that that sends a message to it sends a message to the female deputies that's not very good that's yep. my opinion yeah. on it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Next question. All
1: righty. Uh, so this one comes from Coop Laurie. Coop Laurie. Uh, Laurie Coop. Cooper. She's a she's a crime writer. And she's reached out to us a little bit. But she says, what has been your favorite story that you've covered on your podcast?
0: Oh, God. This is a good one. What You answer it first.
1: So I think two. I think from season one, it was paraphilia's. And we sort of overlaid that with the book and the documentary of The Voyeur. But just that being sort of my wheelhouse for so long, it was just, it it felt like I didn't even have to prep for that episode. I was just spewing stuff that I had been studying and researching for so long. So that was really fun. So I would say, of season one, that was my fave. And season two, uh, was an interview. I think it was the interview we did with Fitz, James Fitzgerald, and um, I just thought it was such an interesting concept to say, Hey, do we think the Unabomber was an incel? Yeah, taking this wonderful historic true crime case and this new or concept and bouncing it off of the expert on this perpetrator. And, you know, getting some really good information out of him that even he really wasn't connecting to this term incel, even though he knew there was this problematic behavior with women that we all kind of got to explore together. So that was really cool.
0: And we're going to be doing a follow up with that because he's offered he's uncovered a a trove of information that he's willing to share with us in written communications between Kaczynski and one of his girlfriends. So yeah, yeah. that's I can't wait for that. I
1: know, I know. I'm excited for that. What so what so about, what about
0: you? So, so, okay you did season Yeah. So season one I almost I, I really feel strongly that I think it was more because of a personal experience was our interview with Jen Haley. Oh, okay. From Mindhunter, because that was the first time Not necessarily. I love all of our content. I'm just, you know, I love learning and I love challenging myself. And so every every topic we have, we don't do topics we don't have any interest in, because you know, right. But then I'll say there are some that I've been moderately interested in that have been like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating.
1: Yeah, once you dive into it.
0: But with Jen, that was it was like an experience being with you. And our wonderful friend now uh, and collaborator, Justin Neese, who produced, that was the first time we had met Ju- Justin, and he you know, whipped up this. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, We knew we wanted to interview this wonderful writer right. that our friend Deb had connected us with. But the, the, what I liked about that experience was I just felt like we are doing something so different. We, we're taking the expertise and experience that we have, and we're doing something new with it. Now it's maybe not new to a bunch of other people who do this for a living. I mean we're not Diane right. Sawyer you know, right. doing it Right. No. Year. I'm not.
1: We are not but groundbreaking I, trailblazers. I,
0: but I but it was really amazing to me and, and she was such a great, easy first interview. I mean she you know, she was yeah. wonderful. For not
1: knowing what the hell we were doing, it turned out pretty great. I so, thought so too. Yeah. Just everything sort of came together. That makes sense.
0: And then uh, season two is a tie between uh, cults and Amanda Knox, I think.
1: I think cults was actually our last episode of season. That one. That was season one. Okay, well then. I they, thought you were going to say cults.
0: Well, the cults was was tied with Jen for yeah. season one because the cults, you know, my m- m- my personal connection, and then just sort of that really kind of pulled forward again the idea of um groupthink, you know just how easily it is people are longing for connection and anyone can be influenced i think there are also you know there are some that continue today that that i think we want to revisit and maybe do a crossover with with one of our other um compatriot shows talking about cults and a connection to multi-level marketing there's and pyramid schemes because there's a lot of them that, that they are they're clearly cults and right. you know they have almost as much impact financially right. on people's lives but and I did love you the send
1: me and, an article recently
0: about yeah. talking about to a, an expert the clothing remember you i posted online and you were like oh those are shitty leggings
1: <laughs> oh god
0: <laughs> yes
1: i think i said fucking hideous fucking hideous Okay. Um, yeah, that they had to consult an expert who gets people out of cults, to get people out of MLMs. Yeah,
0: and I, I have friends from high school. I had a, I have a, a wonderful friend from high school whose uh, whose adult child is involved in not only a multi level marketing um, scheme or entity, but one that purports to have medicinal and treatment. Therapeutic benefits, which are not bounded and not based in science. And I'm about as woo, I'm about as far woo woo as you can go Mm -hmm. and still be a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And even I'm like, "Uh, um, no, your cancer's not going to be cured by rosemary oil. That's just, it ain't going to happen. But we'll get into that. The other one, but really, Amanda Knox to me was a huge one because it was so. Bugfuck crazy. And there's a lot of true crime stories out there and podcasts about true crimes that have such amazing right and left hand turns that you don't expect. But this one was the one that, you know, that the documentary that we both watched before we did it to see this woman being just, you know, you know, explaining so authentically, like, this is who I was, this is how this happened. And to realize that, you know, the rest of the world just sees skimming the surface of, like, oh, yeah, she did that thing in Italy, and realize mm-hmm. there's, you know, there are people involved and people's lives get ruined by egotistical people in power. And I thought that particularly, that one and the wrongly accused parents, um, we've gotten so much feedback. About that episode.
1: There's so many similarities. But it speaks to this just true crime in general. And so often when you see something happening on the news or you read about something and it's like, oh, it's happening over there. I'm just going to be an observer. I'm just going to consume this. And I I think I want to dip into this later. We have a question about exploitation. But... you just you hit the nail on the head i mean there's people involved and god forbid it happened to you or your family one day yeah and then you get to see what it's like from the inside out but yeah that was a great that was a great episode so from facebook ashley b she asked do you plan on covering cases and thought processes behind noble cause corruption Versus perceived corruption, and how it plays out on the screen as well as behind the scenes.
0: Okay, so first of all, I have to say that thank you so much because I had to go to Wikipedia. Yeah. To look up noble cause.
1: Oh. Okay. Corruption.
0: I, I really, seriously, I, I like. You know so, I, what I'm familiar with is is phrasing framing things as behavioral drift, which is not the same thing as noble cause. And I corruption.
1: think we like really lightly tapped on that. In our arson episode at the beginning of season one, because we were talking about these firefighters that are setting fires to then look like heroes, and but this so this is more having to do with law enforcement. And when I when I hear noble cause corruption, I think of I I say my all-time favorite cop show, but I don't really watch cop shows. But The Shield was my favorite. It was so good. And these guys are doing all these terrible things to get the bad guys off the street. I mean, they were doing terrible things to make their own money and stuff like that. But it it was going above and beyond the law to also then enforce laws. And I thought that w- that's just what sticks out in my head. But I I just I recently finished Frank Gerardo's book, Betrayal in Blue, about the um, the police officers in New York in the 70s, 70s and 80s, well, a big corruption scandal in NYPD. Was that like,
0: the, like what Serpico was based on?
1: No, it was... Separate from Serpico. Okay. Um, I can't remember if it preceded it or if it was
0: after. Well, you know, probably what we should do. I'm, you and, want to define? I, let me read the definition yeah, from wik- sure. Wikipedia for those of you that, out there that were like me that didn't really know what the that was. The definition
1: is not the TV show The Shield. Exactly. Officially.
0: So, noble cause corruption, and I'm, let's give Wikipedia its due. Noble cause corruption is corruption that's caused by the adherent, adherence to a teleological ethical system. It's suggesting that people will use use unethical or illegal means to attain desirable goals, so a result which appears to benefit the greater good. Where traditional corruption is defined by personal gain, noble cause corruption forms when someone is convinced of their righteousness and will do anything within their powers to achieve the desired result. An example of noble cause corruption is police misconduct, quote, committed in the name of good ends, close quote, or neglect of due process through a quote, moral commitment to make the world a safer place to live, close quote. So that's a great sort of down and dirty. Well, it's not even down and dirty. That's mm-hmm. pretty specific. Yeah. The problem I have with it, and I realize, and I believe me, I'm not coming at this saying that that I, in my life, have been always moral and ethical because I'm human and, and I am challenged by those things as well, is that after having worked in a position where I work with law enforcement for the purposes of helping people with severe mental illness and navigating the Los Angeles County court system and, and actually sitting in on long trials that or hearings that are so different from how they're portrayed in television and film is that you realize that, you know, We have a a social contract and a duty in Western thought, in Western philosophy, in the Western world to adhere to the legal process. Because if we don't, it'll go off the rails very quickly. It goes off the rails even though we have this system. There are people that, you know, if you start, like, look at, is it Duarte, the Philippine president? Who basically, okay, his his noble cause is that he wants to get drugs out of the Philippines. So they're just basically gunning down drug users and they're gunning down, and dealers. Right. So it's like, oh, we're, so it's not even looking at the fact of like... You know, I mean, why is that person dealing drugs? Right.
1: What's the root issue? How do we exactly?
0: What's there? you know? What what is the underlying issue? There's no work. We have to do something to support the family. Would what would you do? It's the old, you know, it's the old philosophical article our argument of Would you steal a loaf of bread to uh, feed your starving family? Right. And you know, these are really tough questions. But um, yeah, I have I have real problems with that because especially when you see in, in big government agencies and government spending and they're like uh, you yeah. know, well somebody should be the whistleblower on this. And it's like yeah, in some cases they should and in right. other things it's it's a lot more complex. But ultimately yeah. I think that you know you have to, but noble cause corruption is fast. Dirty Harry is a great example. You know, um what was the one with Charles Bronson where he go, his wife gets, his wife and daughter get raped and killed and then uh, uh Death wish.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of those films. Yeah. You know, the sort of vigilante justice stuff. But I mean, they're not cops usually. Right. Vigilante stuff. But I, I, I don't know. After I read Frank's book, um, yeah, I, I, I think that maybe something in the future it might be something we touch on. Yeah. Um, there's also a Netflix documentary on that same topic that I haven't watched yet of the New York officers, but it would be interesting, uh, to you know cover what, and
0: we should cover with that case. And also there's a really great, really great, dark, 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 um, movie that came out a few years ago with, of course, Kevin Bacon, because Kevin Bacon is in everything and I'm blanking on the name of it, but you'll probably remember it. If you're a movie fan is it's the one where, there's a series of child molestations and they're convinced that they know who did it. So they capture the guy, like all the fam, the, you know, the people in the neighborhood. And they, I think they almost beat the guy to death
1: hmm.
0: and it ends up, I'm not sure if you ever find out if the guy actually did it or if they were wrong. So
1: Kevin Bacon is
0: the child No, he's, he's one of the parents. Oh.
1: Okay, because he played one where he was a convicted sex offender, the woodsman. But that was years ago. That
0: was woodsman. That was the one, oh, right? Where the I mean, whole that he didn't he was convicted and living in this neighborhood, but he wasn't responsible for something that happened I think he, recently, I right? No,
1: it's been forever since that was
0: two thousand four. Yeah. Anyway, that was yeah, just a, great a few
1: question.
0: years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my god, time just keeps speeding. You
1: know.
0: Up. But yeah, you know what? That's a, I think that's a good subject for us to read.
1: The documentary on Netflix is called The 7-5. That was the precinct they worked out of, was the 75th precinct.
0: So look, since we're going to put that down as a as a future episode, if anybody else has any other particular examples of that, please tweet us or message us on Facebook with what you want covered in that episode, and we'll touch on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So on the topic of episodes... Um, we had a question on Instagram. Will you be doing a Jeffrey Dahmer centric episode sometime
0: soon? I took some notes on this cause I was fascinated. Okay. So who was that? That was aunt, aunt Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yep. Yeah. So I love this idea. The problem that, uh, Shiloh and I have had with cases like this that are so done and have been around because it's especially particularly this one is pretty, pretty salacious. Um, it's It's been done from so many angles. Shiloh and I have to sit down and figure out how we're going to make it fresh. Right. If we could get our hands... I think we could get our hands on one of the psych profiles. I have his we, MMPI. Okay. So, well, that would be... It. So, the MMPI is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality yep. Index, yep. and that's a pretty much one of the go-to gold standards of uh, personality tests. So, right. we could break that apart. That would be good. And maybe... I mean, it's kind of been done, but I think maybe we need to look at it from a sociological perspective as well of, you know, in the same way that we talked about how, uh, with Anthony our last soul. one, what was his name? Anthony soul with soul.
1: Right. You
0: know, nobody gave a shit when it was a bunch of black women falling that they,
1: out of windows naked, falling out of windows yeah.
0: naked and using crack. They didn't, you know, nobody cared about them. And in the same way, because Dahmer's victims were all young gay men that were just disappearing and you know there wasn't a lot of action in fact one of the like one of the most horrifying parts of that is one of his victims escaped right. naked running in the street screaming and he was able to convince the cops oh it's just my boyfriend he's drunk i'm going to take him home yep. and then he took him home and killed him yep Maybe. but Okay. Well, now i have convinced myself that we okay, should do an so episode. We're doing it. So <laughs> you have it Elizabeth, written already. Now <laughs> we're going to do it. Uh, it'll it'll be you know it'll be soon because we're not really doing seasons anymore. That's another thing we're going to do. We're just going to
1: yeah, probably. Um,
0: we may call it seasons, but basically we're just going to keep going because we like doing this. <laughs>
1: well, and there's no reason to have a season necessarily except to just break up if we take a hiatus. But it's not as if this is a series that you have to listen to in order Um, but yeah I think that's just part of our process is with these heavy hitter topics is what new spin can we bring to it right I thought that was a really interesting question that we got at the Lit Fest Pasadena when someone in the audience asked what our process was for developing an episode and said something like, and so do you guys sit down together and write a script?
0: Oh my gosh. It was so like, she was, she's, I think it was she a report. No, she's a she writer. A writer as well. She's a writer and so earnest and really kind. I love talking to her, but she asked that question and both of us like went, no, we just turn on the mic and start talking. We kind
1: of text back and forth for a while.
0: But I mean, well, and we also like, oh, wait, you know what? I don't I need to refresh on this area. Yeah. Let me let me yeah. go look up the you know, let me go a little bit further than the second page of Google and get to back to my textbooks, you know, because yeah. we don't want to be, you know, completely talking out of our butt. the no, whole time. No,
1: which we're not. I mean, I'm I, I love that. I'm constantly going to books that I don't necessarily use in my everyday practice anymore and I'm pulling them off the shelf to yeah. do research. It's kind of fun to dive back into that. Okay, so um, again from Instagram, at Brewer Baking asked, regarding child exploitation, are factors such as anonymity, rapid development of technology, and lack of legislation a growing problem that should be addressed? And this, so this was an area that I was working in for a long time because throughout the past, well, I would say 10 years, but it's now been, well, since I opened my practice again, I'm going to say, okay, the last 12 years I've been working with offenders who have, um, primarily committed their sexual offenses via the internet. So we're talking, um, either production of downloading or distribution or possession of child abuse images, child sexual abuse images, um, what else do we call it, soliciting a minor over the internet, things of that nature. Of course, the technology is the issue. Um, I had some t- statistics that I used to show my students in trainings when we were working with this population, and for a good like, three-year chunk, all I saw were federal offenders, so majority of those are going to be internet-related offenders, and... Between, in like a 10-year time period, I want to say roughly, 2004 to 2014, that internet sex crimes had gone up like 400%. Oh, wow. And that was for a lot of different factors. At one time, the Internet was a luxury, right? Not everyone could afford it. And then all of a sudden, everybody could afford it. And and you saw in the groups that we ran, it wasn't a bunch of old white men anymore. It was very diverse. You had people of all ages, races, backgrounds that were getting in trouble for this stuff. And it absolutely... they term it the, the triple A's. It was anonymity, accessibility, and affordability. because you have not heard that, but You that's can sit great. behind your computer. You can access it from anywhere. You can be completely anonymous. So they think, I don't know about completely anonymous, but it's, it's, it's the perceived feeling of anonymity that contributes to individuals committing these crimes. I
0: would add another A and say, I'm just going to make something up, but I'm going to say aggregate disinhibition as well because before this venue came along individuals who maybe had this predilection had no place to go right. you know they had or they had very limited places to go the you know for child porn you got it only through means that were you know, certainly wasn't electronic. It was, you know, you're ordering through the U
1: S mail. Yeah.
0: And, you know, very out of country and they would get caught, you know, but then, you know, they reorganize on the other end. And these people had, I think there were even like back, you know, in the early nineties before computers became so ubiquitous, there was a law and order episode about, you know, sort of the Brown paper wrapper of, of VCR cassettes going around the world and stuff. And, you know the the idea that this wonderful tool allows us to all connect and find like oh i'm into you know i'm into esoteric southern folklore and i can connect with all these people that have all this information and now i have like a you know real fascination with it that's a positive you know but right. the there's a negative to it when pedophiles and and also i mean we even talk about people that really don't fall within that particular primary pedophile categorization, but maybe what we talk about the saturation effect where someone who has, is using sexuality or their expression of sexuality or masturbation as a coping skill for life stressors and they're whacking off to conventional porn and then it doesn't do it for them anymore. Right. So they have to push the edge a little bit and it's like, it's Oh, look at, this look at this. And then finally they're, you know, they go from, they see that one little link on barely legal that takes them into completely illegal. Right. And even some of those, those individuals that I've worked with in therapy, like when they kind of come out of it and get, you know, on some good medication and if they're insightful and if they're not, completely petty peta or hebephilicly oriented they'll look at you with wide eyes and go what the hell happened to me how did i get there or
1: help me figure this help out help me
0: figure this out and then we have there's... to you know we take them through the steps of right. like well this is how you got here right um but i think i got a little far afield let me go back to the question uh well it,
1: i i wanted to bring up how it's interesting that The laws don't keep up with the technology. They can't. The federal federal laws are so strict and steep. And it was because it was for people who were using the U.S. mail to literally send this across state lines Mm -hmm. to get to people who were going through a lot of risk and effort to get this, where now it's so effortless and free and accessible and so now you have these you know decades long sentences with lifetime probation or parole when it was a much more serious offense and probably intended for the more risky individuals who are willing to jump through all those hoops just to get their hands on this rather than it being sort of this desensitization, desensitization issue of a porn addiction or, you know, whatever. Um, so you have this issue of you, you and I have both treated individuals who were either really young or maybe on the spectrum somewhere or some other intellectual disabilities that are coming across this stuff and then getting decades-long sentences.
0: Yeah, that's something that we've touched on before in the past that, uh, you know, Shiloh and I both feel really strongly that the net is way too big and cast way too wide. And each of the... not Everyone deserves a fair day in court and... I don't think that necessarily everybody gets one with these kind of charges because not everybody needs the same amount of treatment. We've talked about, we've touched on concepts such as under treatment and over treatment, you know, which you wouldn't think about. It's like, Oh, it's a sex offender. Put them in a group or put them in that. It's like, well, no, you may be taking somebody that's at low risk and putting them into a group of high risk offenders. They're not going to get any benefit out of it. In fact, it's probably going to push them to, I'm not saying it's going to, pressure them to relapse, but it's setting up some factors that are not going to work in their Or they're favor. going
1: to end up getting manipulated and victimized by the,
0: by the real experience. Ones. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we can't paint everyone with the same brush. And I, I think that's what we sort of talk about a lot is that it's, it's not this black or white thinking where people just want to label individuals and, you know, do away with them. There's so much gray that needs to be evaluated and assessed as we were talking in our last episode about sex offender risk assessment and see where they people individuals fall and where who can be helped with treatment and how much they need instead of a one size fits all right. punishment.
0: Now, the other thing, I mean, the other aspect of child exploitation is so, well, let me say this uh, and I you know the more I talk about it I'm really happy this question came up because in spite of sort of this the ephemeral nature of, of trying to track these guys down you know the feds you know <laughs> once you hit a certain level of downloads you you are on the radar or the the vast majority of people if you're an expert hacker maybe you're getting away with things that, that other people can't get away with but you know and the feds are out there and they know, I mean, they're, you know, they have systems in place that, and once you meet that threshold of numbers, man, right? you know, you don't, Shilo and I both treated people for, I mean, you for many years longer than I did, but I remember the stories I heard from some of my clients about the SWAT teams coming to their house at two in the morning and we're not talking i mean we are now we are talking about what it looks like on television it Mm -hmm. looks exactly like Mm -hmm. that they are bringing 60 people and helicopters they are cutting off the entire neighborhood you are getting dragged out of your house every piece of electronic equipment i mean it's it's the real deal yeah but and on one hand paying attention to this is important because we don't no child deserves any kind of exploitation like that. Another aspect that this question could be referring to is that we are now, uh, as law enforcement entities and mental health practitioners, much more aware of the ubiquity of uh, sex trafficking, which is eye-opening and horrifying. Right. When if you if you Decide to go down this rabbit hole and read about it in every major city in the U.S., not even talking about the rest of the world, there's major child trafficking, human trafficking not going on. Not even
1: major cities. I mean, if we're talking about like this area, it's happening in Rancho Cucamonga. Oh, yeah. You know, not just L.A. or San Bernardino. And it's
0: it could be something as salacious as, you know, uh, Children being pulled into the sex trade or immigrants without papers literally being held in slavery in a rich couple's house. For 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 two decades, right, we we hear these cases every single week of someone coming forward, going, yeah, they've been making, they beat me and make me clean the house for twenty years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's
1: the human trafficking and the production of the child pornography is is really, like you said, the horrific piece of it that. I think we're always going to be behind them when it comes to technology, yeah. and especially when you're talking about, um, you know, exploiting children in different countries via the internet, where someone sitting here can, via webcam, you know, have a young child from Thailand perform sexual acts in front of the camera. And hide their IP address and all of that, you know. But
0: and being and and, you know and may being directed by their parents to do it because that's right the money that's coming in. I mean, it's it's a cultural challenge. It's you know it it challenges on a number of levels. That yeah, it's difficult.
1: But law enforcement is great with their technology. But as as in any sort of crime. The criminals are going to find a new way to do it, and we have to sort of play catch-up and try and outsmart them with the technology we have. But it I think it's scary to think of – I I, for, I remember them throwing out the numbers of how many IP addresses, like what percentage of IP addresses in the United States have accessed child pornography. Yeah. And it was really high. Yeah. You know, whether it's something someone's doubled up on by accident or someone's <laughs> like, hey – I want to find out what this dark web is all about.
0: Right. Well, and and along that line, I love the graphs that show, um, and I wish I had the Google terms for them, the graphs that show uh, a map of the U.S. and show state by state what the the predominant porn search is. Yeah. And what's hilarious is the stuff that's on the more... Paraphilic and kinky end of the spectrum is all in red, poor states, Bible Belt, Bible Belt, like all that repressed sexuality just yep. leaking. Oh yeah, total behavioral and leaking all leakage. over
1: keyboards across America. Ew.
0: <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> uh,
1: we had a, a quick question from Philip J. Seventy Five on Instagram that just wanted to know about tips for future forensic psychologists. So, Philip, I'm just going to direct you to. Season two, episode eight, which was our So You Want to Be a Forensic Psychologist. Um, throughout, we have something sprinkled out throughout today, but I, I think our number one was doing your research on schools and programs. Yeah, you know so what I can add to that? Point. I
0: mean, I think, Philip, thanks for, for writing in and um, definitely listen to that episode. And also, but thanks for asking the question, because just in light of my recent trainings um, that I really enjoyed, you know, I have done a little bit of court work. I I chose not to take the path of doing a lot of uh, expert testimony because it is a specific thing. And, you know, if you're gifted at it and if you're passionate about it, you can have an, an unbelievable career. Uh, like because people are needed like experts that know how to uh, manage themselves and manage being on the stand and being you know at the you know at the receiving end from all sets of attorneys there but that's one aspect that we really didn't talk about which I think I'm gonna try and get um, a friend of mine that does it all the time I'm gonna have her come in and tell us about specifics on expert testimony be awesome. but um what other i mean you know when we say forensics there's so many different ways that it can be i mean being a law enforcement psychologist is an aspect of being a forensic psychologist right. because it's you know you're working with law enforcement there're things that you can do in working in the correctional system in the post correctional system i mean there's it's the field of psychology is is wide to begin with but even within our discipline there are so many places you can go. If you're not somebody that wants to do therapy and or you don't want to do court testimony, but you love the idea of testing and really writing about what you're finding from tests, I have two, two buddies that left our division, and they do the uh, the test for people who are pursuing law enforcement as a career. Right. And they love it because wow. they give a battery of tests to these men and women and then they're responsible for writing up the profiles. I think that's fascinating.
1: You know, we, we should probably go back to our episode and just jot down what we didn't touch on. We could always do a part two. That's a great... We'll do that. I love also bringing in guests that are doing it and having Let's, them come yeah. in and talk about it. So, something so, hey, to consider. Yeah,
0: Philip, thanks for that reminder. Yeah, we will, definitely. We're going to pursue that. Oh, he's from Sweden.
1: No, the next one's from Sweden. Oh, oh wait. No, I'm sorry. Yes.
0: It's both of them. He's oh, from he Sweden. asked two
1: questions. Okay. Um, so, his his other question was, can I work as a forensic psychologist in the U.S. or as a criminal profiler If I'm from Sweden and I think this is really just coming down to licensure when we're talking about working as a, any sort of psychologist in any state in the United States. So if, and, and I don't know specifically if he is already a psychologist in Sweden and thinking about, you know, immigrating over here and transferring licensure or if he's just saying as you know someone that's not from your country which of course well
0: let's so let's let's break that down okay. into because one of the things that i'm noticing is when you let me first of all when you say a criminal profiler um i think we touched we've touched on this several times before profilers for agencies, especially like the FBI and those profilers are not necessarily psychologists. Right. Some of them have gone. but profiling itself, if you watch Mindhunter is it's a process that you learn on your own and it has a lot of aspects. like I, I think you'd be a better profiler if you were a psychologist or had a background, but that's not to say that someone who came from a law enforcement background and is, a, and is a really good detective, and then they go and they learn this specific technique. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, I work, one of one of my um, law enforcement partners is, you know, he's just, he's a detective. He's a great detective. I learned so much from him. And when we were at lunch the other day, he said, I am learning so much from you guys. When I'm in the car, because we will partner with a social worker um, uh, who's a, a good friend of mine, and it's really neat to hear this. This. This cop say, I feel like my, my head expands every time. Like I'm just learning so many That's different so ways neat. to look at it, which I'd say right back to him is like, you know, I, I get a chance to expand my perspective as well by looking through law enforcement eyes. Right. But so that was the thing about, you know, not necessarily, do you have to be a psychologist to be a profiler? Um, if you were going to work as a forensic psychologist, like say you're here on a student visa, this is one part I do know. So if you're here on a student visa and you're enrolled in a program and then you get a job, you, you are allowed to work here on a student visa in order to do your internship because you are still enrolled as a student. That means you, especially if you went to like a really good program, um, an APA accredited program that then gets you into a paid internship, that, that would work for you, you know, because there's a, because you're a student, you can do that. The minute you graduate, I think you would have to be on a different type of visa, like a work visa. Um, and that's something that probably like you, if you know, you found a school that you were interested in, uh, there are so many schools, especially in California, because we have students from all over the world that come here right. to our psychology programs. Yeah. I mean, I'm not exaggerating at all. Um,
1: no, one of my closest friends in grad school is from Kenya, and he graduated and went back there and started working right away.
0: Yeah, that's also something like if you wanted to work in Sweden, you know, or work in in, in that area, if if the European Union continues to exist, you could basically be the expert in that. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. But yeah, if you have any additional questions on that, Philip, let us know. We'd be happy to to research it a little bit and talk about it.
1: So Brewer Baking also asked, "What is your favorite assessment tool?" I'll let you go first on this
0: one. You know, I haven't done assessments in so long. It's, I mean, I, I mean, I do. Um, mine is a standard SAMHSA inter, psych interview, and I do a lot of substance abuse interviews. I don't really enjoy it. It's right. like I'm tired of hearing how many Did times somebody's done ecstasy. Did you have one
1: in a, another setting? I like or the hair. Training?
0: when we were at the hair psychopathy checklist to me was just amazing. And I mean, I have so much admiration for Dr. Hare because, you know, he developed this tool and it's like the guy who invented the, the atom bomb and never intended for it to be used in the way that it's being used. He was horrified. And Dr. Hare, I, I have great admiration for him coming forward to say, this is a tool and you are making a lot of, uh, uh you're making a lot of assumptions and using it in the legal system in ways that I really didn't intend it to. Mm. But that being said, boy, the, you know, I'm telling you, the, the, I remember one of the clients we had at sharper future and this guy looked like somebody at a central casting is just being like a nice kid from Santa Clarita, you know, just put together and groomed and, you know, then you read the C file, and you know I administered the test and looked at the results, and he's like complete psychopath. Right. Those tests, I mean, they're so accurate. Right. It was amazing. Well, so they
1: I, open your eyes of what to start looking for. Yeah. That was not on your radar before that.
0: Okay, you which know is what? Another one. So the other one, like if I if if I had tons of free time mm-hmm. and wasn't going to be involved in another hobby, the one that I would go back to get expertise in would be the Rorschach. And there's a lot of controversy about the Rorschach and it, it continues to evolve. And there's literally, there's nobody that's neutral about the Rorschach. They either think it's complete bullshit or they think it's like almost verging it, right? on, on psychic. Yes. Um, I actually am somewhere more in the neutral area, but because I come from a place where um, you know, my you know, I have a little bit of a Jungian background and I'm interested in how people interpret things I'm amazed at what you can get out of a Rorschach. It's like there's some characterological things that come out that uh, th- that just blow me away.
1: I wish I had at least had some exposure to it because my assessment professor was in the camp of like this is bullshit. We're not going to use it. I had, I had a lot of students from Azusa Pacific University, and they teach it there, and they loved it.
0: They also have a really good professor there, at least they did back in the day, and I think right. that's that makes all the difference, Oh, I'm too. sure.
1: I'm sure. And my professor, she was amazing. I loved her, but she was just in that other camp. But I never had the exposure to it to make my own decision on whether I wanted to lean towards it or not. My
0: professor was uh, also... Uh, he was on full time staff at ash uh, which is a tascadero state hospital it 's in Northern California or north central california uh it 's one of the last remaining uh psychiatric inpatient long term hospitals you know since Reagan dismantled that whole system back right. in the day and it you know sort of spread across the country unfortunately there's not as many as there were but um Ashe is... um Really staffed by some amazing psychologists. It's a dangerous place to work because um, the assault levels are very high there. But I remember him coming in, and he, the first thing he said was, "There's a lot of controversy. I want you to be educated on the controversy." And he even held up our scoring manual, and he said, "Here's the problem in this scoring manual: is that you know x number of years after this was published, we found that." this data is incorrect. So it throws at least this much out. I want you to know that because I don't think you should throw the entire thing out. We should fix it, but there's a lot to be had from this. And one of the ones like I, and I wasn't even, you know, that experienced of an an administrator of it, but you know, part of the process when you take an, an assessment class is you have to you have to do assessments and you do it on classmates, which pollutes the information a little bit because everybody's exposed to it. And then you're not supposed to do friends and family, but you, how do you go like, go to, what do you do? Go to a mall and say, Hey, look at these ink blots for three hours. Yeah. But I administered it to a classmate who was two years, um, under me. So she had not been exposed to it at all. And, Lynn, hey Lynn, if you're listening, I love you, honey. She is really expressive and really well spoken and just eager to do anything. She was like, just perfect, like, oh, let's do it. This will be great. So, one of the challenges about doing the Rorschach is that you can't stop someone. Like, you say, what? And there's a, there's a standard way you uh, present your query, which is you show the picture and you say, what the, what might this be? And that's the only thing you say is, what might this be? And you're not supposed to edit the respondent at all. And if they go on for 20 minutes. So Lynn, like, was just going on and on and on and on. And at one point, it was like, Lynn, we're never going to get through the other picks. I mean I'm so sorry. We're not going like,
1: to get through the other 19 cards.
0: We got to go through like yeah, 19 more slot of cards. And but she was a total trooper and you know scoring it was a complete bear because it's not an electronic score and you have to rate each one of the verbal scores as to whether it contains keywords and I mean it's really difficult. But I'll tell you there was something in the way she responded to one card that absolutely dovetailed in the weirdest way with what her personal history was. And it was something about just having surgery as a child
1: mm-hmm.
0: blew my mind. Wow. And it's very rare. It's not something that anybody else responds to, but right. like, boom, Tapped she hit. into that. So there's something to it. I mean, you know, it probably needs to be more refined and they need to fix that error. But yeah, I think it's cool.
1: I like the hair a lot too. Um, I just find that I didn't, Do it very often. So when I got the opportunity to, I was really excited and, oh, this, this, you know, I want to try this on this client to see where he's at. And so I remember being very meticulous and really concentrating on it. But I think the training that I went to was so great that that made me excited yeah. about it again going back to training. I'm sure you guys are sick of hearing us training whores talk about training, but um, but my favorite assessment tool which I didn't I used a lot in grad school and then a little bit afterwards I had some practicum settings that would kind of let me use whatever I wanted was the 16PF. Did you guys use that? I don't know. I
0: don't remember it. What was it? So
1: it's a pretty quick self-report personality
0: assessment. Six- so self-report means you give it to someone as a questionnaire and they, right. they fill it out themselves right. Is it was right. it, is it like bubble. Is it like a radio button? Filling? Yes.
1: Okay. Yes. And then what I liked about it is with these 16 factors that it really looked at people's strengths and weaknesses, which I feel like a lot of the personality assessments are just looking at diagnostics or weaknesses. Or have this more negative connotation to them, and I loved that it looked at things like warmth and reasoning and emotional oh, stability cool. and uh, sensitivity and um, um, perfectionism, and so all of these these traits where they were sort of at one end of the spectrum, or you know, you just kind of see on those spectrum of warmth, where do they rate? Right. So it was just really cool because it's but just isn't 16 that subjective factors.
0: for you as a rater?
1: No, because as however they answered, then you plot that along okay. this spectrum. So okay. no, it, it ends up um, probably working out more to like a Likert scale. But um, yeah, you have a list of traits on one end of the spectrum, and then another list of traits on the other end. But they both connect with whatever this factor is. But I just thought it was fun to give. It was easy to do, and I liked the information that I got out of it. it was something I could play up to people's strengths and use that as an intervention. But it's kind of a rare one out there, the 16 p.m. i have to
0: look for it. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Miss Molly BK asked us, you talked a bit about how you found to live and die in L.A. exploitative, which... She and I had this conversation via Twitter. Can you talk more about exploitation in... And then it's cut off, so I don't know if she's talking about in true crime or podcasts or... um I, I think we can just sort of speak to it in that way. Yeah. But so I had had a real issue living listening to the episode to Live and Die in LA or the podcast, which is... Put out by the same folks who do um, Up and Vanished, which was a great podcast. Um, And it's a Again, it's, it's sort of this, this journalist that hasn't really looked at true crime before, and he's worked with Rolling Stone, and he ends up sort of in real time following this case that happened in L.A. last year where this woman that was sort of an aspiring actress goes missing. And her boyfriend's a suspect. And, and, How do it, I not know about so he's getting, did you,
0: you didn't even tell me. You never yes, tell I, me I, anything. You
1: never listen to me I, is I, the I one listen thing.
0: to you. I just forget.
1: Oh, we're presenting at a conference? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you, it's to live and die in L.A.? To
1: live and die in L.A. And so it's, it's interesting because it's it's happening in real time a year ago. But it's weird because, like, he gets this phone call from this private investigator that's like, hey, you might want to, like, you might be interested in this. And then all of a sudden it's like, it turns into this podcast. So I was listening to it kind of warily because at the beginning I'm thinking, this seems a little contrived. I don't know what's going on here. But it was an interesting story. And then about four or five episodes in, the main suspect in the case ends up. Dying by suicide at the end of a police pursuit. Wow. And this journalist that is doing this podcast calls up the wife, the grieving wife, who's just found out this news, to be the first one to get a soundbite from her. And does that with a couple, like a a good friend or a brother, I can't remember. And then this woman is just crying on the phone. And he has... Zero tact, zero empathy towards what's going on, and is just it. It it was so repulsing that I said, "I can't. I'm, I'm out. Like I can't listen to this anymore and support it." Um, I think you know, curiosity. I could have listened to it, but I thought, just I don't want to support this. And I remember putting a tweet out that said, "Like done with this. Feels really exploitative. I'm out." And, like, there were crickets. There were no responses to it. And then Molly had commented how she was listening to it and having some of the sort of same reactions. And then there was this Twitter thread, and someone said, hey, you should listen to Crime Writers On, and they do an episode about it. And they nail exactly, you know, what's kind of being said here. And so I'm now, like, this huge fan of Crime Writers On because they just – they're crime writers that review – Either true crime documentaries or podcasts, and they're just unedited, blunt about what they think. And they were like, "What the fuck is this guy doing?"
0: Well, I'm, uh, you know, and it was hugely I'm popular. This,
1: it was on, like I, yeah, on the top no, of the I'm list. I'm on the website
0: now. I, I can see and and you know, I, I, the reaction I have to that, even from just what you're saying, is you know, stepping. Completely out of psychologist shoes and into you know working in the legal system. That's incredibly fucked up because on one hand, look, real time. I don't. How am I going to say this? Because I'm, I'm I'm just off the cuff at, answering this, but I'm thinking that look, real time needs to be reserved for. Detectives and investigating and and solidifying the story instead of throwing another perspective in that's ginning up all this stuff in the community now i like I think it's amazing that we as part of the podcast community, there are some amazing things that are happening in cold cases right like people are like hey i 'm passionate about." Sister, what was the one like? You know, all the people that are about oh, yeah. the, the abuse scandal and the the, the keepers. way, yeah, yeah. Keepers one. yeah, the way people come together for these things and go, you know, hey, you know, I've got some extra time. I'm going to look this up, and then I mean, it's amazing.
1: Like giving the respect to okay, law enforcement probably exhausted all their efforts,
0: but and they that's they why they're this? cold
1: cases. But what else? You know, it's not right. getting attention. Maybe I can dig something up.
0: Yeah. All these years, so later. but the idea that. An individual would call someone at that moment is really kind of um, that that's outside the pale. I mean, that, that's right. that's bad.
1: I mean, there's just these clips of he's talking back and forth about like, oh, should I call her? Well, the media's going to call her anyway, so I'm just going to call her and then gets her on the phone and she's sobbing. And he's going, I, I, I'm really sorry, but da, da 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 like, here's my question. And it's just zero um, empathy. It- it's, it, I, I feel like empathy is too good of a word to even use for him where it's just...
0: Well, that's... Because det- it doesn't care.
1: Like, let me push no. your tears out of the way right. and I have something to ask
0: you. Well, that's entitlement and that is, yeah. you know, yeah. and, I mean, that's we great. talk about sort of... Um, the idea of our 15 minutes of fame, we, like you and I, we don't know what's going to come out with this podcast. We love doing this. We love that. There's a handful of people out there listening and that they enjoy it. And, and we enjoy doing this, but to, to go to that, you know, we're respectful. I mean, I'll, I, you know, I'm going to talk in a second about something that I, that is challenging and I may get some shit for this, but this particular case is, yeah, I think that all of us need to have ethical standards. Um, We're not journalists. Right. You know, we, in this role, really, we're entertainers. Right. Right. We're not doing therapy on air. We're educating you guys and entertaining you with our ridiculous stories and what goes on. But I'm not going to call somebody up that's the victim of a crime. I may have somebody on. You know, we've had people, we will have people on if they're willing. Sure. And the way I would say is, like, we're going to do this with respect. And when you're ready... But the idea that, you know, I think it's just the idea sort of like when I was in casting and, and I was blown away at people that would just kind of show up to Hollywood and get their picture taken, and I'm an actor. It's like, no, you're not. You've had no classes. You you, you know, somebody told you you had a pretty smile in, in East Podunk, Arkansas, and you thought you could come out here and do yeah. this. And, you know, there's that sort of, and you know, um, unintelligent Entitlement. Right. And that's an example of what I think you're talking about in this individual. And good for him for being his feet being held to the fire by that podcast.
1: Yeah. And and I think it lends to a bigger sort of philosophical conversation about people's intrigue with true crime and what is exploitation and what isn't. And, you know, that feels like very much. Obvious, you know it when you see it. Exploitation, um, but again, when we go back to talking about these are real people and these are real things that they've gone through, whether it's us talking about you know how awful it is for the McCanns or uh, Amanda Knox's experience, we're still producing entertainment out of talking about these. Topics. So, you know, where, where, where are we even on this spectrum right. what of, part are we playing? of finding this interesting enough to put out material about it that is then consumed by people for entertainment? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been a consumer since before the internet, and I had to go to Barnes and No—not Barnes and Noble. What was the old bookstore? I don't remember. And just stand in the crew trying true crime section and which book do I want to read, you know, as a teenager, all the way up to it informed what I wanted to do as a career. And now us deciding to do this. I mean, it, it's a weird place to be, I think. Well,
0: and we've talked about, I mean, many people have talked about, and Claire, we got asked about this on the the board at LitFest about, well, why is this so fascinating? And I think that it speaks to people for different reasons at different times in their lives I'm fascinated by it. You know, my my own uh, background is, you know, uh, having a personal experience of a family member when I was young and engaged in something really, really extreme. And... It informed my life for many years. In am I capable of doing that? Am I part of why that happened? You know, guilt and, and questioning identity issues. So that was my way of sort of taming that demon. And that's, but I'll say this, it's no better or worse than anybody else. You know, I would think the only thing that I get like a little... Curious about is when I meet true crime people that wanted want to do nothing but focus on the the crime scene. Oh, okay. You know, and are just completely like enamored of the individual was killed in this way and in this, and you know, obsessing I,
1: I over all the gory details.
0: Yeah, the gory details, but like, but I don't know why, and I'm not gonna, you know, armchair psychologist that, you know, and they don't. Deserve that kind of introspection. I just know that that's not how, what I'm coming from. And it's just an illustration that a lot of people come at it. I think that we're all fascinated with things that are alien from our, Right. you know, and there are some people that are like, I want to listen to it so I can get better. You know, that's the
1: first thing I do. Usually when I go to someone's house for the first time is look at the books on their shelves. And when I went to my husband's house, the first time I met him, he had this book of old vintage homicide scenes I was like, "Okay, this is the guy." (laughs) They're black and white photos. They weren't super gory. They were like L.A. noir type stuff. But
0: yeah, try and back that one up.
1: Yeah, love over crime books. Um, I will, you know, just to touch a little
0: bit, like to follow. You and I were talking before we started recording. I just finished uh, season one of Sleuth, which um, I think
1: you talked about a little bit last time.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I and that. I did not know that the host had passed away um, in February of this year. And I feel very badly for her. Uh, I know she was a a, intensely, intensely loved her adult children. She was a great mom. She talked about them a lot. Uh, I had, um, I think it's a fascinating case. I've described it as uh, Fargo meets Waiting for Guffman in Orange County, California with about some of the most sort of trashy and psychopathic individuals that you would meet. It's almost unbelievable like that because it's, it's so over the top that it's darkly comical and yet I have to pull back and go, no, you know, the, the victim's parents are still alive and they are, you know, they're, they're hurting. Um, because Linda, the host of this, um, there was things that, I mean, at first I think she describes herself as a crime writer and I have no problem with that. That's, that's fine. You're a crime writer. And oh my gosh, the information that she gets out of collateral sources through interviews is mind boggling. She gets people to talk with her, you know, she has this ease about her. That's really wonderful. But then in other episodes, she's like, well, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist. And that, that's not what I was taught in journalism class when I was getting my English degree years ago is because there are a couple of interviews where she is not the passive neutral interviewer. She's kind of, you know, she's kind of sharing humor and some things that, and you know what, what, And we'll never know because she's no longer with us. Maybe that was her method, her modus operandi for obtaining information. And
1: building rapport.
0: Building rapport. Mm -hmm. I I get it. But I'm not even so sure. Like I felt badly for some of the people that really kind of embarrassed and implicated themselves, probably shared more about themselves personally than they would really want out Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure if other people pick up on that, but in listening to it, I was like, I don't really like this person that's being interviewed, but I feel badly for them because I don't think they're really savvy enough to realize what they've just said.
1: Well, and the the basic definition of exploitation is taking advantage of a situation or a person to gain an advantage or benefit. Right. So again, it's the difference when you listen to something like To Live and Die in L.A., and compare that to, um, you know, something where there, there is a host that is remaining neutral and going about it in a very methodical way and professional and ethical way and still producing wonderful content. You know, it doesn't have to be so salacious and in the moment. And let me get this first. Because who cares? You recorded it last year in 2018. And it came out this year. It felt it was in the moment then, but it's not as if you're. Thank God he didn't release the episodes as it was happening. Yeah. And I was just thinking, God, those poor detectives at LAPD that are trying to investigate this, and then you got this private investigator and this podcaster that are, you know, trying to chase down leads and well, stuff. And, and that happens here. God. Like you know,
0: she, Linda was. Um, now, she was also treated very badly by the DA in Orange County. And that DA, uh, I think he's actually he retired and he's being under investigation for some corruption. I mean, she uncovered a lot of things. I mean, I have really great admiration for her. It's just that I didn't understand this one approach. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just think that the the main thing is is that you are you're muddying the waters. I guess on one hand, like if, if this, you know, spunky reporter, writer, crime, crime writer comes up with like, Hey, no, this is evidence that maybe doesn't exonerate, but it clearly shows that other people were involved and that the person who's taking the fall is covering up for people. Then, you know, bring it forward. But the way going about it, I mean, it, And I'm just not really sure that's going to be... I'd kind of be like, hey, will you just let my attorney do his job?
1: Well, and it doesn't surprise me in the age of, you know, maybe I can have the next great podcast that people are are sort of going about these methods and throwing ethics out the window Yeah. to try and get that.
0: So hopefully we we will keep our ethics intact.
1: Okay, do we have time for one more question? We have one via email, which is... um, I didn't, it's one you sent me and I did not get her name, but it was, it was via email. So she says, I'm wondering if you have an opinion on the increased involvement of the foster care slash child protection services over the past 59 years in regards to the development of sociopaths, if removed from abusive homes in time, can the development be halted or decreased? I'm not assuming the system is perfect, but wondering if it had an impact Or maybe the abuse is so hidden it's not found or not found in time to to make a difference. Or maybe I'm not understanding how the environment impacts the process. So there's a lot there. Very specific about CPS in the last 59 years. Um, So I think this is looking at the age-old environment you know, nature versus nurture?
0: That's that's one part of it. Is that what it.
1: you're sort of getting out of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, quickly, I, you know, the first point, just kind of addressing uh, child protective services and foster care, out here we call it DCFS, Department of Child and Family Services. Excuse me, and there's a different version in every state or county. Usually it's, you know, kind of, I think it's run by the state. But, um, you know, one of the things to remember is that up until recently, and when I say recently, I mean the last 125 years. I mean, this month marks women obtaining the right to vote 100 years ago. A lot of people might not blink at that, but that's a relatively short time when you think about you know, the span of human history. And I think people should actually be in this political environment should be really freaking scared about what rights can be taken away from them. But yeah. that's a side note building on that what we you know that's one that we talk about is like oh look it's it's june it's the 100th anniversary what we don't talk about so much is that children up until recently really only the last 65 75 years have been seen as property they were not humans and now part of that is sort of sociological because up until the last 200 years the majority of children not the majority, but a huge number of children died in infancy, childbirth, the, didn't even last the first six years. So the idea, we a lot of people don't understand that for, for generations, for eons, parents made no effort to have any kind of connection with their kids because you don't know if that kid's going to be around, mm. right? It's going to be survival. Right. So what we're fighting with is this process of trying to understand that children... I mean, you know, as a parent, like idea that, that your gorgeous daughter as an infant was communicating with you through sign language, mm-hmm. that fucking blew my mind <laughs> right. because I'm not a child development person. I'm not really interested in that work, but this was fascinating to me. But for many years, we just thought of them as these unrealized little troublemakers that were basically unregulated id and needed to be contained and punished and... This is my long-winded way of saying is that the violence against children and disregard for children's rights has been going on for many, many, many years. Even though taking into account that, like, if you go back 400, 500 years, that you were an adult by the time you were 12 or 13. Right. You were expected to... Because your life expectancy was really only about 35 Yeah, times. you're
1: halfway there. You better yeah, get on you it.
0: better get on, you know, um, play on that field. Right. Little Albert. But... Um, To illustrate that we have a focus on these things and we're, I think we're actually as a society, we're trying to catch up and there's a cultural aspect. I mean, you know, I've, I've done counseling on. And a a parent from another culture that thought it was appropriate to, you know, heat coins and drag it down their child's back because that was a treatment for the flu. Mm -hmm. Not realizing, you know, these are not the coins you have in your country and you heated them too much and now this kid's back is shredded. Right. You know, um, they didn't see that as abuse. A man who is sitting at a table with his wife and she has the audacity to order her own meal so he backhands her. Right. Well, he's like, in my country we do that. Right. So we have that same thing with, with children and I think we're only catching up. And we also, one of the things I think that's making it really difficult is that we have an unprecedented level of entitlement among parents and entitlement in our society where parents, I know the best. I know everything. I know my kid. How dare you interact in our lives? You know, it's, it's sort of that's, and that's generational, like, you know, when I was growing up, and I know I sound like an old fart doing this, but like you were terrified to get in touch and get in trouble with your teacher or to go to the principal. Or God forbid the principal calls your parents because they are gonna be so embarrassed and so angry. And you're gonna gonna, get
1: beat when you get you
0: are gonna get beat. Now I'm not and I'm not advocating for for violence. I'm just saying that there's a whole different dynamic now where parents don't wanna look at problems their children have or they don't want to deal with it and they see dcfs as these monsters who are coming in to take their kids away and dcfs out here we've had some major major problems
1: terrible cases horrible
0: things and this i will say the vast majority of clinicians i know working with dcfs not only are they amazing they're freaking exhausted of course, their caseloads are enormous. I mean, somebody that has three hundred children on a case—how do I you mean,
1: even visit ha, every month? Or yeah,
0: how do you monitor that? Right. But God help you if one of those, if something happens to one of those kids, right. because you are going to be the one. And we had a case recently, also, where a supervisor and, and this person should go to prison. I'm not sure if they got time or not. But they had their clinicians falsify notes, and the, the clinicians got in a lot of trouble. I don't feel like they should have gotten as much trouble as they did because they were, you know, I, I really feel like... The process of becoming a mental health clinician in our culture is like indentured servitude. It's like, am I going to lose my job? My supervisor's telling me to do this. Right. You know, I came into this field a lot later than most people. So if when and I have been asked a couple of times to do things that were unethical, like, oh, well, just, just uh, post date those notes and just go ahead. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lose my license well, for, for you. you. I'm not going to do that.
1: Because I think you do have to have that your own internal ethical standard to be able to stand up for some things like that
0: but, but, but I, I get
1: how the environment yeah. is conducive to people having that drift
0: yeah and that's just one aspect of the question the other one is yeah
1: we, i think we should veer back to yeah, yeah i want to get back to like abusive homes and, like
0: it comes back to that aspect we talked about before of resiliency there are kids there are some kids that are going to experience terrible abuse and they're going to come out okay that's no excuse for the abuse at all, and there are some kids that are going to be traumatized horribly and and learn to cope, uh, and some kids that are going to not learn to cope at all. That's not necessarily meaning that any of them are going to become sociopaths. I think if you wanted to create a sociopath, you probably could. I mean, there are some. I mean, I. I look at Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos (laughs) woman, I really think like her family, you know, because she did not have sort of corrective emotional experiences, maybe she fits all those psychopathic tendencies Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that um, have been researched. And maybe she has the brain structure, but, and that's one of the things is like, you may be able to create sociopathy in a child, but I feel the predominant aspect is going to be brain structure. Uh, brain and structure and
1: and when we say environment, I so I, I just want to say I'm not aware of any research linking sociopaths or psychopaths having a significant amount of time spent in foster care yeah. or in the system. Yes,
0: good clarification.
1: The link would be that we do know is trauma, so childhood trauma. Right. So whether that happens in the home that they're being removed from. Or they get put into a foster home where the trauma is then happening. I don't know. I can't say, and I don't have any of those numbers. But the environmental factor that we are seeing is childhood trauma, where the other two factors are organic, uh, genetic component, and brain structure. So, it, it environment is absolutely um, a factor with that. And again, I mean, I, I think we're sort of all over the place on this question, but there's a lot.
0: It's, in complex. Here. It's, it's, a it's complex. It's it's very question. complex.
1: Um and
0: uh, there's you know remember when we were I remember discovering when we were at Sharper Future um if you go online if you go to YouTube and uh, do a search for Child of Rage there's a documentary that was done back in the I think early 90s that is really phenomenal and it's all free on YouTube and it is about um uh, it primarily focuses on a young girl who was part of a family of three siblings and all three of them were, I I don't necessarily know how much abuse there was. There was unbelievable neglect to the point where the infant was left so long in the bassinet that the back of the skull was deformed because there was no movement.
1: There was sexual abuse as well.
0: There was sexual abuse. Okay. So you will listen to this young girl be interviewed and hear some of the most chilling things coming out of a child's mouth. I mean, it's like something out of a horror the movie. The bad seed. Yeah. The bad seed or the exorcist. I mean, it's, it's really frightening. And yet the long term result is that this was an environment. Um, she was put into a foster home, a foster home that could not handle her. Like she, she terrified them. And thankfully they realized, I think it was a minister and his wife and they realized we we can't handle this. We're going to have to have some experts. So she was put into a specialized, structured environment and structured treatment modality and began to thrive. So these impulses to hurt her siblings mm-hmm. and to hurt her parents, foster parents subsided and I think she has now changed her name and she's now like a, a, a child's nurse. Wow. Um, so that just illustrating i highly recommend watching it it's it's free online but to show that you know it's about environment and and treatment but the sad thing is that the vast majority of children that have been traumatized are not going to have access to the level of treatment and care that this young woman got
1: right right wow Heavy stuff.
0: Heavy stuff to end on, <laughs> uh, but great, great question. And That's you know all over what? the place. We've been told that um, you guys like hearing these, so we'll do a couple more episodes. Uh, please um, hand us, uh, send us over some more questions, and we'll be happy to.
1: Yeah, I love um, that it gives us um, not just something to talk about, but future research areas that we can look into and, right. and come up with episodes. And we just uh, love answering these questions. So.
0: We love having listeners. Thank you so much.
1: I know. I know. All right. Episode 15 in the books.
0: Hey, oh, buy one question for you guys or one request. Tweet us or get us on Facebook. Let us know what app you use to listen to this podcast on. I'm really curious because I just use the standard Uh, Apple Apple, uh, podcast app. And I hear, because I listen to so many other podcasts during my commute, the one thing that I know that Apple does not have that I've heard others do is an ability to actually increase the speed. So oh, if you're Apple listening, does. I, huh? Apple does. It does. I don't know how to do that.
1: Shoot, I'll show you. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's how I got through whatever I was listening to last.
0: There's a couple. Oh man, like two hours, and here we are. We're pushing two hours too. I hope we haven't bored anybody. No. Anyway, we're really, really excited. We're we are now one month away from the first annual true crime podcast festival in chicago illinois we We got our hotel rooms
1: we're ordering t-shirts
0: we're ordering some snacks and swag for our fans and we can't wait to meet you guys please if you're if you show up please come and give us a handshake and let us know know
1: that if you're going to be there reach out we have
0: stickers for you
1: oh yeah we have we're gonna have a ton of swag for you guys so all right well till next time
0: we will see you next time on la not so confidential have a great night folks thanks Bye. bye
1: Bye.